Can you tell me a bit about how many homes you can do a day? And I saw something that said the ideal would be to get to like a house a minute. Right now, we, we can produce two houses per shift. But the goal eventually is to get to the house per minute because that's done with other big products like cars. That's not like a crazy number. You are Elon Musk for housing effectively. It, that, that's insanity. Well, the casita folds up from 20 feet down to eight and a half feet. And that's the magic number to be highway legal. Wow. The government in general is responsible for the fact that housing is expensive because they're interfering with building construction like on every possible level. 100% agree with say you. all the yeah. time. Where'd all the idea come for this? The inspiration to start Boxable and then to go down that path to make it kind of the giant that it is now. Give us some of the sauce. So there's so many things we don't know about. Where where do you think you're going with this? When, when, when I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. When I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. I'm getting absolutely destroyed with taxes. Uh, on a deal that I'm working on. So that's oh, not yeah. fun. That one's, it's the killing hist? me, man. The little hist? The HST is insane on this conversion. And it's, even when I talked to the tax consultant, she was like, this is the problem. We were talking about this, but this is the problem with housing. She's like, they, they need housing, but they want to tax you on every little bit and the extra amount. Man, so my perpetual project. Yes. <laughs> right? Rates had gone down a little bit. We're going to talk about that on the show. Like the fact that, you know, bond yield is spiked, so rates are up 80 points in the last month or something. And that is the margin from these projects being tenable or not. And wouldn't that project be a lot more affordable if the $3 million HST bill wasn't in there at the end? Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder if they even amortize it or something for us. But this is found money for them. Like, either mm -hmm. this building doesn't exist and they don't get the money, or it does exist... But like they also don't get the money. Like they're just they're gonna get all the property tax, they're gonna get all the stuff. And I know I know HST is, is different than property tax, like in terms of level of government. But my God, man, like you either want the housing or you don't. It's psycho. Here's here'd be an interesting thought is maybe they leave HST a new construction like they have now. So when you buy a new home or a condo, you pay the HST within the price. And I'm I'm sure everyone knew that, but if you didn't, when you see a house, brand new home that's listed or a brand new condo factored into that price is the HST for your province. Yeah. Um, but if they removed it for rental stock, that would be neat because yeah. that would or actually incentivize uh, building some rental apartments. Or even, even amortized it and said, hey, you can defer yeah. your HST payment over the course maybe of a five-year term, 10-year term. The argument on that would be that you can put it into your CMHC financing. A portion of it. Well, you would just change it then and so that you can't. You know what I mean? Like... If they amortize it for you versus the opposite of like, if you don't pay it and you miss one day, they're charging you or the nine or 10% interest, uh, Sarah balls at. But, and so again, this could be the difference of the units getting built or not getting built. Mm -hmm. Like this jams up your Here, project. 15%, jams up my that's project. Huge. That's enormous. You can't cut 15% any other way. No. Uh, so then the units don't get built and the government doesn't get the tax money, but also people don't have the place to live. So at some point, you got to concede on okay. something. Like, have we, you seen... We have, to, we have to jump into what I have written down here. I have some shit okay, okay. that feeds into conspiracies. But before we even get into this, did you see... We were all complaining here on the East Coast about our property taxes going up. Yeah. Right? Like, the city wanted... I think they wanted 8%. 8.6%, I think it was. Or something and I think crazy. they got 4. I, I can't even remember. Yeah. Um, Vancouver is talking, like, almost 9 this year and also might need almost 9 next year. And the big question is, like, well, why? What changed? <sighs> 
because they all live off of D transfer tax. And you know what? They like to play, oh my gosh, yeah, it's so sad that things aren't affordable here, but give me all that money. They take and they get addicted to it. It's like every other level of government where the more tax dollars they get, all of a sudden they balloon their budget and somehow cannot live without that tax money moving forward, even if it's new money, because they never used to get all that de-transfer tax money. And then all of a sudden they get used to it. Now they need it. And when it goes away, like the market slips, right? The market dipped down, right? All of a sudden, what are they going to do? Okay, we got to get it somewhere else. Let's jack property tax because we're not going to get the de-transfer tax. That's what's but going this, on, man. Like, But this boils 100%. back to my idea that really our number one industry is real estate. And so they have to make money off of that. Okay. The only way for this to go down is to have more industry that's outside of real estate. Manufacturing, resource, like exploration, resource, actual production, yeah. uh, refinement, all of those things are going to actually lead to us having alternate tax sources, Yeah, which allow us to have reduced taxes and everything else. Alberta is a prime example. They have a lot of resources. They bring in a lot of tax revenue, aka all their other taxes are reduced. Their HST is 5%. Because yeah. they don't have a provincial sales tax. But then we just demonize them for, you know. We demonize them, I think, partially because... Oil is bad. Well, because oil is Give bad, me but it's also like... Drill, baby, drill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm all for that. Um, but Let's go. Yeah. And I mean, they, they, pay, the they pay a ton of adjustment costs into the rest of the country. That's yeah. the other thing. Like, I, I, would, I should get those numbers sometime and bring up, like, what Alberta brings in. And how much money they offset each the province old transfer for. payments. The old transfer Oof. payments. That's a hot topic. That is a hot topic. Any any Albertan will tell you that they pay for a lot of what, especially Atlantic Canada has. Literally, um, all right. So. so my buddy uh, married a girl from Calgary, and they're fantastic. Um, <laughs> and her dad is has always been an oil and gas guy. Is mm-hmm. his whole career. Mm-hmm. During his wedding speech, he mentioned. Like basically the transfer payments, transfer payments <laughs> and how um, Atlantic Canada uh, votes liberal and all this stuff. Like he mentioned it at the speech. That's it wild. Was really funny, man. I kind of respect it. I kind of respect it. Yeah. You got to try and get the word out. I uh, yeah, it was great. Uh, anyway, all right. What are we talking about today? Well, so a bunch of different things. We are super fired up. Oh yeah, Chandler yes today has his fanciest coat on. Yeah. I do not, um, but we have a crazy guest coming in. I don't mean actually crazy, but I would say one of our bigger guests we've had, not to disregard or disrespect any guests I've had I think this is our biggest guest But we're super excited. Um, His name is Galliano Tiramani. I'm going to butcher that, but I I did listen to a video to make sure that's how it's pronounced. Yeah. Um, But he is the founder and director of Boxable, and I feel like everyone's probably seen Boxable somewhere on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube because they have a crazy amount of marketing going on. It is those little homes, which they call casitas, and they fold out. They come in little flat-packed, basically flat-packed wrapped boxes. They land on site. You don't have to build them. You literally just unpack them and fold them. They expand like origami, like an accordion, and it's a home. It's a a casita. It's a 375-square-foot studio with a kitchen, a bathroom, a bedroom, and a living room. Um... They're blowing up everywhere. They had Elon Musk buying some. They've been racing them on Instagram. They've been lighting them on fire. Like, there's so many crazy things. Uh, thousands and thousands of orders. Thousands already. of orders. Thousands of, tens of thousands of investors. Hundreds of millions of dollars raised. Unicorn status. Um, so, anyways, we shouted them out a few weeks ago. They reached out. They reached out. They want to come on. So, stay tuned. At the end of this episode, we are having on uh, Galliano, and he is going to talk about 
everything to do with boxable. So we're yeah, super fired up. Yeah, and this is near and dear to our hearts because we've talked so long about the prefab, a modular model being the future of housing. And without giving too much away, these units cost $60,000. But what's mm-hmm. also cool is you can stack and assemble them together. So some of you would have said, oh, 370 odd square feet, that sounds awfully small. You can stack six of them together, right? And make a 2,300 and, and some odd square foot place. Um, and they've been doing this and they're also filling a lot of government contracts, a lot of um, labor contracts on you know, work sites where they would just drop off. Like I saw them drop off 160 somewhere, 175 somewhere else. Think of where, I mean, what do we pay for our, our temporary housing here in Halifax or over on the, the Dartmouth side? Would it end up oh, 300,000? A unit. Something, something like 300,000 Something insane. Unit. And yeah. they're not nice. Like they're trailers with plywood on the bottom. It's, it's yeah. brutal. So, and they were, I don't know if they were used or not, but these are would be brand new. Super, super exciting. So the other get into consideration that. is the cost of one of these. If you look at that amortized, it'd be lower rent payment than renting a one bedroom that's 375 square feet. Oh my gosh. So anyways, yeah. just throwing that out there. Yeah, yeah. Then I have a couple things that I don't really want to say too much, but it's regarding our housing crash that I want to run off Chandler and see what All he right, thinks because go. the let's news right is saying that the, the market's crashing and everyone's going to die and we're all going to lose our homes and we're all bankrupt. I mean, we talked a little bit about this last week and how the numbers don't bear it out in a lot of markets, including ours here uh, in, in Halifax. Um, okay. But let's hear what you got. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to read to you here, some stuff. There's a few things in my mind because as you know, I'm a bit of a pessimist. Um, but so Oxford Economics has pegged Canada as one of the most likely countries to face a housing crisis. Uh, they did this by weighing a number of factors such as expenses against income, mm-hmm. household credit as a percent of GDP, mm-hmm. return on assets, and other things like that. They had about 10 factors. Against other countries, we came in the top three. And housing crisis means not just, um, hey, it's hard for people to find a place, but some sort of uh, like recessionary ma- Major drop-off uh, volume just mm-hmm. coming okay, to a complete okay. close. Um, in total, 27 countries landed in a high-risk area. Um, this is a comparable to 2007 where there was 26 countries at the same in that year that landed in what was considered a high-risk uh, scenario. Furthermore, they also stated that on average, a housing crisis takes place after eight months of declining house prices. Okay. We just entered our ninth month. Yeah. Um, so all of these things are panning to look very similar to 2007. So that, to me, I was like, it was interesting, but it's the same stats that we always hear. On the flip side, I feel like your immediate response is going to be inventory. I mean, there, there's, yeah, we, we have a big inventory problem as well. So, so then gonna... I, I looked into it because I was like, okay, how short are we on houses? Because we always hear the stats that we need to build 270,000 houses for the next five years to catch up. But then we already build 220,000 houses a year. So they're saying we need to add 50,000 yep. houses a year for the next five years. Oh, but, uh, that, that sounds low to me, but... Yeah, and it might, it might be more than that. But, but the point is they always give us this range... And they additionally, that they're factoring into the amount of immigration and like the growth of the yeah, country's population. 1.5 million over the next three years, which by 2050, I saw the site by 2050, 100% of Canada's population growth is going to be immigration. None of it is going to be domestic population growth. Exactly, which is scary to me is that they ever freeze that up or it slows down or in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing that I was going to add is I was like, how many people or how many homes are we actually short in today's, like if we just stopped, not looking at like the moving forward, how many are we actually short? Um, so John Francis Perot, chief economist of the Bank of Nova Scotia, he did a study, wrote a note, um, and he looked at what the actual standalone shortfall across Canada was. And it came to around 100,000 homes in 2021 by his estimates. No okay. one has the exact number, but that's what he estimated. And then I was like, okay, like how could we instantly put 100,000 homes back on the market? So 
just, you know, you're, I'm already nervous about your response, but I looked at how many Airbnb homes are there in Canada. And there's 100,000 Airbnbs in Canada. And now I know, obviously, overnight, you're not going to have all of them come on market. I know a bunch of them are secondary properties. I know a bunch of them are yurts. I know there's all those things that play into it. But I was just like, even if they do sweeping legislations across Canada about Airbnbs, right? And that's also where some of this pressure for Airbnb legislation no may kidding. be coming from. Yeah. It might be federal, not just on a provincial or municipal level that we're seeing this. Um, does that bring on 30,000, 40,000 more available units for people to live in? And then that takes away that $100,000 shortfall that we have, takes that to half maybe. And then there's alternative, there's empty units. Like, could we fill a good portion of that pretty quickly? I don't necessarily know that we'll fill all 100000 but we might be able to fill a big part of it, which First, would really take off a lot of heat on the market. And then on top of all these other items that they talk about with debt ratios and all the stuff that we already know, I, I don't know. I'm, this is just me giving all negative, but this was, again, I was just diving into it because I, I was like, okay, what, what are our responses always to these things? There's no way 100000 is nearly enough. And if he's talking in 2021, I mean, he was wrong then, and I think he's way more wrong now in, in, the, in the two years since. Okay. I mean, 1.5 million new people over the next three years, and you're saying 100,000 more homes is going to not only satisfy, you know, the existing people. I know you're saying right now with a snapshot, we brought in 500,000 last year. So mm-hmm. his 100,000, that means we one did, in five did, of them. I think 270,000 homes last year. So he's, but the 100,000 extra would be on top of what we're already building. Presumably that's already getting absorbed. Because yeah, why are we even building 275,000 if we only need 100 according to this guy? Because, that doesn't make sense. No, no, but if we stopped today, so we didn't bring any more immigrants in, mm-hmm. like if we just stopped our, our motion, because we're in a motion, right, where it's like every year we need another 500,000 people, we have another 500,000 people. But that people, doesn't make sense either. So we need to house all of them, so we need 300,000 homes. Yeah, that, that doesn't make sense either. So if, like if we absorb 275,000 homes a year, yes, and we just stopped and said, okay, we're not, we're not going to bring in any more people. Yes, it's not like the 275,000 new homes that were sold were only to new people. They weren't at all. No, but lots of old inventory. Like it opens up more inventory because there's a certain amount of people that have to go into those homes. And so we're looking at it on an annual basis or a five-year stretch. But if you say with legislations, they could force 40,000 homes on the market in two months, in 60 days, 90 days, by forcing people out of Airbnbs or forcing people other things to take place. And well, so we'll get, we'll get we have a, to we have that a burn, in a second. Right? We burn, let's say we fill 15,000 homes a month. And we're building 10,000 homes a month. And so right now we keep shortfalling by 5,000. But if overnight they throw in a bunch of legislations that cause a bunch of empty homes like they did in Vancouver to open up and a bunch of short-term rentals to open up, now we're going to go from providing 10,000 homes to market to 20,000. And it's 10,000 old homes that are already there, but they weren't being utilized for long-term stays, whether it be rent or ownership. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I just think there's a lot of flawed reasoning in there. I mean, we won't even get to the fact that of those however many hundred thousand Airbnbs are out there, how many of them are actual homes? It's it's a fraction of that in terms of like could be converted yeah, to yeah, someone there's else's cottages, home. there's it, short-term things, there's freaking uh, tents, there's parking there, there's lots. rooms in someone's house. There's yeah. the fact that I put my home on there, but I only, you know, rent it out there five times a year. Yeah. There's my cottage. That's my primary totally. residence. You're never gonna get it. Yeah. Right. Like so I, I think that number is I don't know. I, I think it could even be 10x the actual inventory that would be out there. Because one place that has seven yurts, that's seven listings. Yeah. Right. Like, so I, I do believe, and, and you take some of these are cottage country places that are all rented. I think it's seven to 10 X. So if there's a hundred thousand out there, I would think there's somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000 actual units that could go back into traditional house stock. like stocking homes. Then yeah. the question is, well, are those just servicing rentals or actually 
purchases as well, right? Because if they come to market and the people cannot buy them, then they're not actually being absorbed. Or if people cannot afford them, it doesn't solve the problem. This is the crazy idea. It's like, oh, let's just have all these extra homes and all of a sudden that's where people will live. It's like, if they can't afford them, they can't afford them, right? And they tend to be predominantly in secondary markets. Are people going to go and start buying yurts to live in in Cow Bay because it came available? It's no longer an Airbnb. It's a, it's a very stupid uh, logic. You think so? Because here's the other, here's the, like, again, to go back to what I was saying is, if we keep breaking it down to a shorter window of time, so right now we've had declining home prices. If you then, again, look at look at it on a monthly basis. Let's say we need, what is it, 20,000? We need 25,000 homes a month, effectively, and we're building around 20,000. I think those, that's kind of roughly what the numbers are right now. But if you pause immigration, we're probably not even going to be able to build that many houses anymore. You're saying, like, all right, let's freeze it right now? No, no, we don't no, have no, 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 I'm not saying freeze it. I'm saying, okay, look at the next three months. So right now it's declining home sales. People are losing confidence. Things are going on. Then in the next three months, all these Airbnbs come back onto market. And so now instead of needing, we are building 20,000, we need 25,000, but the Airbnbs are bringing on an extra 7,000 a month. So now we're actually bringing on more homes to market than are required or more rentals to market than are required by a small amount. And that's going to dramatically change the marketplace in the sense of how when you list a rental apartment, we get way less replies or we get way less people signing up. Let me finish. Or same with buying homes. We're already kind of seeing it. People are not necessarily getting a ton of offers or they're getting multiple offers under asking. So that kind of gets even worse. People have short-term bias. Like if that starts happening for 30 to 60 days in a row, even though it's going to recover in, in 90 to 120 days, in those 60 days, people might start to panic. And then that's when you get that final, the final blip of the market where you have like people freaking out and panic selling um, and, and things actually taking place that where then the banks are going to have these credit crunches. And the second that you start seeing panic selling and those kinds of banks are going to be like, whoop, we're not going to loan to values on certain things, which will perpetuate the issue. And then you have that fall off. It, it doesn't take, we're at that point where I think the idea is, is we're now like the ice keeps getting thinner and thinner and thinner. So it's not going to take a big rock to break to, through to it. what end though? And, and like, so what, this could be that small rock that causes the break. And again, I do think at the end of the day, the housing market will recover. And realistically, the whole situation is not like in the long term. I think in two, three, four years, everything will be ripping again. But because you, you, you don't see like in, in 2008, it, it bought them for about two years. It wasn't but you're, for but, 10 but years. But you're, you're talking about trying to manufacture this through essentially um, outlawing short-term rentals, right? That's one That's one avenue. I mean, they're changing things all the time. And they also put in like the vacant housing taxes. I think they put another one in Ontario. So there's a bunch of things that they constantly do to try and make pushes to keep like to push more housing stock onto the market in an aggressive manner. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't seem to be work, working at all. And it, I'm it is not saying that they want, I'm not even, and so here's the other thing. My next point is going to be kind of on the opposite note, because I don't necessarily know that they want there to be a housing crisis, but I'm just saying, could this be the thing that cracks the ice? Could this be the thing? Because the ice has no. gotten really thin. We're on really thin <laughs> ice right now. No, like there could be a crash in the market for secondhand yurts. That's what would happen in that particular scenario is like everyone would be trying to unload their yurts and, and that could go about down. Your yurt? My yurt value could be going down. Uh, or, you know, cottage country places might start to take a hit, all these things. But the idea that there are that many short-term rentals... I'm not just um, saying short-terms, though. Like that, that, I, I did say short-terms here because that was the one thing I know. That the I know. vacant units in, in BC that everyone kind of, you know, dwells on as well, I can't speak to that uh, as much, but I know... Because you know what happens, though? Because So let's say all these, these Airbnbs are coming on for 30 days, and now the market's gotten a little bit worse again. The ice has gotten a little thinner. People who carry vacant property that were doing it purely for investment purposes to gain capital appreciation might be like, shit. Like they're, they're speculative investors. Now it's time they got to drop the bag, right? Like, and we've seen it even in neighborhoods, in brand new neighborhoods in Halifax, people will come by the whole street and you're like, what the hell? And it's a group of people, a lot of times out of province, 
They pool their money together and they buy the entire street. And they might not even rent the units because they're literally speculatively doing it. On average, they're <laughs> renting the units, but sometimes they don't. And, and Or you get some people that have small ones here and there, or they have a unit come up and like, then they're going to throw it on market. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, I'm just wondering if, if, again, if it's that small thing that's going to make the push. Now, on the flip side, on the flip side, okay, let's say we ramp up our production and everything's moving along super great. And so CMHG estimates we need 2.3 million homes by 2030 to bring back the 40% of income affordability. So 40% of your income to make your mortgage payment. So hold on, the other guy said 100,000 homes. And now they're saying probably around 2.3 million. That number sounds a little bit more accurate. But you're not, but yeah, but those are two different things. They're saying 2.3 million. That's projecting again, for our population growth and stuff. We were already going to yeah. build by 2030, that's seven years. So we're averaging 250,000 homes a year. We're already going to build 1.75 million homes. Additionally, they're including for the other 1.5 million immigrants that are going to come in, averaging two people per home. It gives you the other 750,000. That puts you at the 2.3 million. So that's what I'm saying. Like By when? 2030? Okay, yeah. By 2030. The 100,000, he's not saying that that, but if, if you put 100,000 homes on market today, for that to, for a temporary second, we would be full. Like that would, that would fill all that the demand. Yeah. I, okay. I don't that's what he's getting at. Is, is like the, the, the yeah, I just don't still, think that's the yurts. The standstill shortfall is 100,000. That's what he's getting yeah. at. And I get what you're saying. You don't think the yurts are going to fill that? No. Um, you're at life. How many school but, buses do you, will it take? How many converted school buses will it I take know, to, I was to thinking fill that, this I know, I know, exactly. There'll be yeah. some converted school buses coming back to market. There yeah. actually are some sick ones on, on Kijiji if anyone's looking. But um, anyways, so CMHG says we're going to be shortfalling these homes and they're saying obviously we want to fix that. We want to build a bunch more houses because we want to reachieve the 40% of income target to make homes affordable again. Mm -hmm. But the more I think about it, I'm like, do they really want that? And the reason I say that is if that happens by 2030, that would say that the average home in Ontario would also have to fall in price from $870,000 to $500,000 to achieve the 40% affordability metric that they're going after. In Vancouver, $930,000 would have to go down to $625,000 to achieve the affordability that they're, again, going after. Does that make any sense? Because then they're going to wipe out literally everyone's savings, everyone's net worth. Like, well, this they're going to they're going to absolutely decimate the the savings and the value of mostly citizens have in Canada. Like, the scariest. Do they thing, really want that? Do they yeah, actually yeah. want to build these two point three million homes? I don't think. Well, so. this is the double edged sword that they're constantly playing with, and it's the same thing even with immigration. Where like, okay, we know we need these people, but the more they come in, the harder and harder it gets to afford to live here. Mm -hmm. um, and they keep going down this model of like all right, we'll just have to tax people more and then we could provide all of these supports for them after we tax them to death, mm -hmm. which is, you know, making someone sick and then giving them the cure, um, which also might have happened if we want to go down conspiracy <laughs> theories. Um, yeah. Shout out to Woody Harrelson. I don't know if you saw that SNL intro. No. Oh my gosh. So Woody Harrelson was hosting SNL. Yeah. And he comes out and he says he read this crazy script. Jamie, did you hear about this? He's like, oh, I read this crazy script. You know, people send me movie scripts all the time. It was about this big drug cartel. All these drug cartels, they got together and they said that no one could leave the house unless we all did their drugs. <laughs> and he was making this uh, commentary on Big Pharma. Anyway. On SNL. On SNL. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I can't even remember where we were going with before I got sidetracked on that. But just like, not necessarily conspiracy, well, oh, but like, do they, do they really, they really can't achieve the affordability. Like we, the, the trains left, the, the fucking horses left the barn yeah. and there's no going back because unfortunately now everyone's propped up on these values of their houses 
and people have bought into it. Like, imagine you bought into a house for a million bucks and now you're just going to lose all of your money but, but by yeah, 2030. And also realize like how, so the, the big concern in Canada is unquestionably the household debt to GDP. Like that is the biggest concern in our country. And that's, that I guarantee you. That was you, a 10 out of 10 risk factor. Yeah, uh, yeah. On we, the we, we, that would scale. be our, our biggest outlier across all the metrics. I don't even know what the other ones were, but I can just tell you mm-hmm. that is concerning. And we're significantly worse than the U.S. There's all kinds of reasons why like our GDP per capita is not awesome because, um, you know, we don't, don't do anything. As, we don't produce as much because we don't uh, let ourselves do anything with our natural resources. Um, however, the other thing that's on there that was really important is that we don't necessarily have as much asset or net worth. And if you submarine the housing market, which is kind of the only place most the average Canadian has any net worth, mm-hmm. you're, you're opposing forces here, right? So you're exposing them to way more risk in one sense to try to mitigate a risk on the <clears> other <throat> side. And I'm not saying it's it's easy by any stretch, but these these are the the challenges. So I'm, I'm feeling super oh, deflated right now as I sit here. I'm thinking about the property I just wrote an offer on, and I'm like, man, our rent's gonna go down. I'm reading this, and I'm like, well, here's damn, the by 2030, thing. if we actually start building these homes, like look at also some point, into how much CMHC fall. wants everyone to rent. There's this misconception that uh, CMHC is in the business of people owning homes. They're they not want them to rent. CMHC is is big on renting. The other thing. Yeah. The other thing I think realistically that's going to change is they're not going to incentivize construction. And this is kind of proof in what they've done. They're going to incentivize like better loan structures to allow the values to maintain. And you sit in Europe where they have like 110%, 120% loans, 99 year loans. Like that's what most countries have done. Japan's same thing. Mm -hmm. 99 year loans, 99 year leases. And that's to continue to prop up the value because if they stop and it starts going down, the whole economy will crumble. Yeah. Uh, and the model that that particular model people are curious about and this is a, a big digression is that you can buy a property at more favorable lending terms in theory i.e less money down longer amortization mm-hmm. and in exchange you keep the rent dirt cheap mm-hmm. um, and the buildings get fairly dilapidated because there's zero incentive to upgrade them like you mm-hmm. kind of can't if you if you upgrade the unit and charge too much rent you then are in violation of your lend yep. right your, your your lending product um and this comes back to the thing of like our country seems to just want everyone to be equally poor. That's kind of what we want. Yeah. Like, let's, let's not like yeah. I, that. That's becoming increasingly my view of Canada is that we don't really want people to be ambitious and upwardly mobile. What we hope is that we can just make everyone equally poor. Yeah. That's our idea of equality in Canada. I, that's, that's going to get a lot of heat, but it's going to get some heat. I do feel the same. I think a lot of people <laughs> would agree with that. Um, let me fire something at you because I have some stats uh, I'm stressed now. You're stressed? Yeah, just reading this. I, as I wrote it, I was stressed. And then now rereading it, I'm even even more stressed. I think I'm having more time to... Uh, well, I mean, it. listen, as uh, someone who once spoke at Oxford University, I'll just say <laughs> that they aren't infallible. It's, yeah. you know, they make mistakes, Yeah, too, there's sometimes but, some, some um, incorrect guesses. Well, I mean, I, I think the one thing, like I said, that, that really would have skewed us off the radar or off the Richters would be our household debt to GDP. Um, that is kind of our, our I don't want to say our, our downfall, but it's not, not great. No. Um, okay. So I want to talk about something here cause it was, uh, going a little bit viral on social media, a few different videos. And this one guy, um, we talked a little bit before about mortgage fraud Yes. and how it's rampant in some parts of the country where people effectively forge entire lives and in applying for mortgage, Yes. job, work history, credit, 
pay everything. As the fifth estate said, the triple end loan. No job, no income, no credit. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and, and these companies, fly-by-night companies, set up these whole systems. Mm-hmm. Like we'll provide the letters. We'll have someone sitting by phone mm-hmm. ready to verify your employment. <laughs> that is now happening for rentals, for um, people applying to rent units. This guy posted, uh, I think it was a real, I mean, I don't know if it was on TikTok or Instagram, where someone applied for one of his units and he was very suspicious about it. And so he started going down this rabbit hole. But this is how deep it went. Uh, he called their employer and this is where he got fishy because he's like, hi, I'm, I'm calling to do a check on Neil Andrino. I'm like, ah, uh, yes, Neil works for us and he makes $83,700 full time. <laughs> and he's like, that's kind of weird that you had it right there in front of you. Yeah. Um, so he's like, I'll just kind of, you know, check up the company. He looks at the company, website pops up. It's like, okay. Oh my um, but the web, and the website has all this information, but the website's only been in existence for like a year. A year. And then he goes and he tries to look up, to see if the corpse <laughs> been registered and it hasn't been registered and all these things. Anyway, but the good ruse, due diligence, whoever that was, nice work. Most people would be like, ah, whatever. Yeah. It, it was so elaborate, mm, like guilty. a fake company, fake phone line, fake website, fake job letter, everything fake. And this was not to buy a house. This was to apply to a rental. <sighs> How crazy is that? That's insane. I kind of, I, I guess it's probably, I don't know. Someone had the greatest shirt though. I, I must just, be like, Mark, I, uh, that's weird. To me, it's like, the only sketchy thing for me too is like, I guess you're not, I guess they have cash. I'm assuming it's people who have cash and they're ready to make the payments on the, on the rent. Cause I'm like, you're not building any equity or anything. Like if you don't have the money, you don't have the money, but they're like, or you, I get know, in there, you, the kicked, you can't get kicked out. Exactly. You kind of hit the lotto if you get in in some of these districts. You know, speaking of, I got a, a side. I just dealt with one, or I'm dealing with one, about a year into it. This guy was a professional tenant. He moved into my property. Best buds. I, I don't, like, I have a property manager, but I bumped into him. He'd come out when he saw me on site and, oh, I love your building. Everything's great, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, cool. Like, thanks, man. Appreciate it and all this kind of stuff. And then, sure enough, I get a, a lawsuit letter from him. I get I get served. I'm walking down the street and this dude serves me. It was It's quite intense, actually. Um, and it's this guy suing me for tripping down the staircase. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. And so he tripped and fell because there was dust on the staircase. So we went and took a picture of it. There was literally like white glove dust. We're talking like if you sprinkled like some salt-based shit on the, on the yeah. staircase. And he was using that as a reason for falling. Um, anyways, so go to insurance because insurance is going to deal with it. They have the, the stuff. As we're going through the case. How many has he done before? Well, they don't. I guess they didn't have anything on him. Okay. But then he stops paying rent. So then he didn't pay rent for about four months at the end. So he missed four months rent payments. And so I'm trying to get him out, but tenancy board's not quick. So it's the last four months of his lease. He doesn't pay the last four months. And then he wins the lawsuit. And so we pay him out for like 17 grand, which the other was the other eight or nine months of rent. So he lived in my place completely free. And now I'm trying to go and get the rent. I'm like, well, I'm at least going to get the rent that yeah. I, I'm owed. We're going through tenancy board. Went to the hearing. There's no registered address for him. We don't know where he lives. We don't have a phone number, an email form, or anything. We got nothing on him. Yeah. I now have He's to go to broke. court and hope to try and get this guy. And Track I'm like, him down. yeah. You'll I'm going to go through the whole process. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go to the small claims and go through the process and try and garnish wages and everything. Yeah. But like, like even that I've done where I've had to garnish wages and the person just quit their job. Yeah. No, 100%. Like, it, it is ludicrous, man. Like, you just yeah. made me think of that when you were saying this, like, professional tenant thing. And I'm like, this is what I have going on right now. Yeah. And so I, I, Oh. But the fraud thing is is super funny, and um, 
this guy, Dan, I think Dan's last name is Foch. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but he has a podcast as well. And he posted this video about it, a response video. Um, And someone had a great chirp on in their comments. They're like, oh, yeah, landlords who use fraudulent documents to get mortgages complaining about tenants (laughs) using fraudulent (laughs) documents to get uh, a a lease. That's a a good chirp. That was a good chirp. um, You know, to your point about (laughs) um, potential bubbles, right? One of the signs of a bubble in sort of any market is like... Fake documents. The, the rise the rise of fraud, yeah. right? Um, because... Well, it shows that the system naturally does not support it anymore. Yeah. The system I, organically cannot support what's taking place, so we're having to make everything fraudulent. And if we look back to 2008, everyone's watched the movie, The Big Short. Literally, the whole big joke was, they also talk about triple N loans. No, that ninja, ninja loans. Ninja loans, sorry. Yeah. And, but like the same concept is it's all fraudulent shit. No income, no job approved. Or yeah. was there jail same, or whatever. Same concept, yeah. It was like, yeah. it, uh, yeah, this is, this is what I'm, so, going back to what I said, I'm a little sketched. I'm a little this, sketched This out, is man. the other thing that people don't realize. So, and man, I hate the headlines and so many people freak out about the headlines. Like when say, rent has skyrocketed to this amount. It's like, again, that's only the units that are available, uh, which are more often than not new units or newly renovated units. It's not the average Or overpriced is why they're available. Or overpriced, yeah. Um, but, it doesn't matter at a certain point if people cannot afford them, those rents are not going to be collected upon. Right. Yes. And we are getting to the point because a lot of people increasingly there's a situation where no one is moving. Why would they move? They're in a good rent control situation. Mm-hmm. Why would they move? Mm-hmm. Um, Same as selling your house. So you a good equity position. As a result, like these new, these other units are out there, but they're not necessarily that easy to rent. Like I got 173 applications for eight units. And I, I put the application up, started uh, kind of early December. Mm-hmm. So what do you want to call that? Two months, uh, three months. Yeah. Right. I've, I've run this for three months, 173 applications at last count. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people. Applications or responses? Uh, I have kind of an online application. People oh, have filled out an wow. online application. Jesus. Um, yeah. And honestly, I look at a lot of their incomes there and say, this probably isn't affordable for them. Yeah. So of the 173 applications, I maybe, maybe brought 20 people through the building. So yes, there's a lot of demand, um, but if people can't afford them, they can't afford them. And that's going to be a a threshold. But I want to read this to you because this ties in a little bit to immigration, what we've talked about so far. Uh, We've been dominating immigration, right? Like last decade, we led all of the G7 in immigration per capita. Everybody wants to live here. Well, I mean, we have a relatively small population and we're bringing in people at a, at a super high rate. Is it percentage-based or number-based? Uh, percentage-based. Okay, yeah, yeah. The states would, yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we weren't that hot, that far behind the states. As a number? Yeah. yeah. Wow. As, as, a, as a full number, we weren't that as far behind as you might think. Wow. It was something like almost 1% of our population was immigrant. Yeah, like, I remember. It was, yes, it was, it was really yes, high. But yes, anyway, yep. um, so the, listen to this stat. Immigrants are more than twice as likely to live in an unsuitable dwelling. Mm-hmm. which wouldn't surprise you at no, all. Certainly doesn't all. surprise me based on, on the applications no. I'm getting. They're 50% more likely to be shelter poor, meaning they're spending more than 30% of their income on housing because they are increasingly getting stuck with just the units that are available, which are, are very mm-hmm. expensive. And they are about seven times as likely to be underutilized uh, in the workforce, i.e. overqualified for their job. Oh, yeah. This is, and I talked about this before. We are bringing them here. We are exploiting them for cheap labor and jobs that are frankly beneath them in a lot of cases. 
and we are giving them a shit housing situation and we're taxing them and we don't let them buy homes. At some point, <laughs> they're going to freak off. They're they like, might say enough's enough. This is some bullshit. And they might go to one of these other lovely G7 countries where perhaps they're being treated a little bit better. I, I totally agree. That's, that's my biggest concern. Maybe that's, that might even be the thing. And maybe we don't necessarily cut the immigration. We simply just can't get the people to immigrate here. Maybe. What are, what are, why are we so great? Again, we think we're so great. Oh, we're Canada. Everyone must love us. We're so friendly and blah, blah, blah. Eh, we're not that friendly. Like, we're not as friendly as we like to think. And, you know, we're not exactly rolling out the red carpet for them. You got me sketched here, man. I, I like, speechless, just... Well, I, I don't know what's going to happen on the immigration front. I feel... Really out all my friends that want to go invest in the States. I'll see you there. Um, all right, let's just flip. Uh, do you got something else you want to fire at me? No, I've just okay. now completely stressed myself out. And I know you went down a rabbit hole. Neil was I'm, up to some shenanigans, I bet, well, and just started Googling. I, yeah, I mean, any answer you want to find. If you want it to be bad, you can make it bad. If you want it to be good, you can make it good. <laughs> well, let's talk about some good. Okay, yeah, give me some good, because I have nothing else except for the fact that Galliano is coming on, and we have a key player of the week. So, um, Canadian inflation dipped to 5.9%. That's good. Okay, which is down 6.3% from December. Yep. Uh, and it was expected to be at 6.1%. And the peak was eight? The peak was over eight. 8.1 or something? Yeah. Yeah. And this so is the first down. time we've been under 6% since February of last year. So in 12 months, we're finally now getting back to where we were a year ago. Good news. Realizing, remember, the target is between 2 and 3%. And leading up to, to the pandemic and like the 24 months before the pandemic, we kind of were in that 2 to 3% window. Then we dropped down to slightly negative or at 0% at the start of the pandemic. And whoosh, if you've been ship. following the podcast, this means the bananas are restocking. Ah, I wish that was the case. Damn. Groceries are still up 11%. Never mind. Take it all back. There's no bananas. Yeah, there's no money in the banana stand. Um, so. I yeah. love, man, it was funny. To, I feel like the, the groceries kind of, well, I mean, they can't lose because everyone needs to eat. But it was right God, before Christmas. They were like thin, bro. Freezing all prices, blah, 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 blah. And then in February, they all reported their Q4 earnings and they all had record earnings for the year. And everyone's like, Oh yeah, these are the ones that were running these commercials about how charitable and how they're saving everybody, oh, yeah. and it's we're making it affordable to have Christmas. I know. Like, why don't you cut some of your earnings for a minute and yeah. let everybody else eat? Like, what do you think would affect people's quality of life more? Uh, getting rid of Airbnbs or maybe doing something to control pricing at the grocery store? The only way, though, is to kind of do it like kind of the REIT style. Like they'd have to make it semi-publicy or something. Oh yeah, it's like how they regulate the price of milk and gas and all these things. But, but anyway, yeah. um, so unfortunately, yeah, grocery prices are still up. Gas is up a little bit from, from last reporting. Not, not a huge amount, but, but it's up a little bit. Still, it's promising. And it would suggest in a vacuum that the Bank of Canada is not going to continue raising rates, mm -hmm. right? Like th that the pause will continue. Mm -hmm. However, our friends to the south, um, their inflation numbers have not been nearly as good. Uh, the economy is still humming along. Um, their inflation is not going down as expected. So now uh, the markets are building in more consecutive quarter point rate increases in the states. The challenge is there's a lot of pressure um, when the states is still going through inflation for Canada to raise their rates as well. And it comes back to what you were talking about last week about currency value. This is me because the issue is right our now currency. our currency is already kind of getting beat up relative to the U.S. dollar and. As that economy continues to hum along, like we're going to have some pressure and they're going to have to keep raising the rates. So 
And if, it wouldn't be such a big deal if we manufactured in house because we wouldn't have to buy everything from overseas and our dollar wouldn't be as pressing for us. And even having a low dollar for a little bit of time would help for us to maintain immigration. But because we buy all of our resources from outside of our country, we need our dollar to maintain some sort of value. Otherwise, we're going to get destroyed. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why. There's a million other reasons too, but that's just like. But it, it's just also going to be hard for us to keep our um, purchasing <sighs> power. Or power under control if you know our major partner down the south is still having runaway inflation and our dollar is just going down and down and down. Like, how are we going to buy products from next door and try to make things a little bit more affordable? So it's a a bit of a mixed bag on the inflation front. Really good here in Canada, really promising, not so good uh, in the States. Um, And as you and I both know, while that may mean our variable rate stays where it is uh, for a while, which is the the bank overnight rate is 4.5. So most products are, you know, prime plus, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So man, upwards of, I don't know what they'd be right now, six and a half-ish, right, for a lot of variable products out there, uh, maybe more. Um, the five-year fixed rates have been bouncing like crazy, too. They're up 80 points, like I mentioned at the start of the episode. That is nuts. I saw uh, that in, as in well. In the last four weeks. I have an application in. Kill me. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it doesn't look like there's any rate relief in the near future. Um, just kind of more of the same, and that I think we're going to be steady at this for a little while. Man, I'm Which so stressed out right now. I feel like I wish I'd been through one of these. Like, I feel like if you've been through a cycle, but I, again, I've, I've said it on here before. I only know roses. I've only ever seen roses. Things have always just gone up. Awesome, everything, man. everything I've done, everything, not just like, like my investments. I mean, just like everything around me in the world has always just gone up. But cycles are different and how you experience a cycle are, is different depending on what you've got going on at the time, right? Like if you have nothing and you live through a down market, you kind of don't notice. Right, like if you're trying to buy and you're in an up mm. market, you notice a lot. Like it, it depends on what's going on. Like if you were, if you were around doing things in 2007, 2008, depending, like you wouldn't be in the situation you're in now. I was a little stressed. You're a little stressed. Twelve, thirteen range. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was tough times. There was your, your allowance wasn't going as far <laughs> as, as you'd hoped. But um, anyway, so that's what I've got, kind of for some mixed bag of news there. Uh, I think the well, there's rental some good application news. fraud down. is kind of funny. Um, though an interesting telltale sign of, of what world we live in right now. Better news is though, Galliano's coming on now. He's the man and he's going to fix everything because houses are going to be 60 grand a pop and we're not going to worry about this anymore. Man, I'd love to Airbnb some of those. Got- <laughs> <laughs> oh, imagine even just long-term renting at 60 grand, you need to rent them for like 750 bucks. Yeah. Okay, we're going to do our key player of the week this time. This week, it is Rick Holiday. He's the CEO and co-founder of Factory OS. Factory OS is a modular apartment construction company. This is, yeah, they utilize basically offsite construction to build modular units that get stacked into creating apartment buildings. Now, what makes this so impressive is it makes it more affordable to live. They build the units more efficiently and they don't compromise quality to do this. Rick is the man. He's been doing this for a long time. He's been doing this for more than four decades. In 1978, he helped create Eden Housing, Eden Housing, which builds affordable homes for workforces and the formerly homeless in California. In the 1980s, he and Don Turner teamed up to establish Bridge Housing, which builds homes for families of modest means that have been priced out of the market. They are the two most successful nonprofit housing corporations in the nation. Wow. In 1988, he founded Holiday Development and went on to become a leader of leveraging benefits of private development to create vibrant, sustainable communities in the Bay Area. I'm reading this to you guys because there's so much that he's done, but this guy's genuinely been on a mission to create homes for people that they can afford. For nearly half a century. For half a century. Yeah. And now he started Factor OS to continue that mission to build apartment buildings faster and actually truly solve the housing crises that gets faced, again, predominantly in California. So Rick Holiday, 
amazing guy. What he's doing is unbelievable. And Factor House is growing to be an amazing company. Check them out. They're building amazing product. Um, Love it. it. Super excited now to change lanes. It's kind of related in a lot of ways because we're talking a bit about prefab and modular and all that stuff. We have today, we're super excited, maybe fanboying just a little tiny bit here. I'm fanboying. Uh, This is a previous uh, key player of the week. Galliano Tiramani. Galliano Tiramani of Boxable. So we love modular. We love prefab. We think it's the future. It has so many challenges. The biggest one is how to get it on site because when you ship these half-built or partially built structures, it's very difficult. Boxable has the solution. They literally fold these things up like origami, like you were saying earlier. Yep. It is crazy. We are super pumped to have Galliano here today to talk to us. Yeah, before we hop in, we're going to quickly give you an overview because we went straight into it with him. But Boxable was founded in 2017. They've now fundraised over $150 million with 15,000 investors. They are a unicorn. Um, they have now also sold... He's got, a, he's got a wait list like 4,000 uh, people that have already put deposits down on these units. Is it that many? Yeah. I can't remember. 17,000 It's crazy. But the units, again, are the foldable homes. Right now, he's got the casino. You've probably seen on Instagram. It's 375 square feet. It's 20 by 20. Unbelievable. we got to hop into it. you got to hear what he has to say. He is the man. It's so good. Okay, so i got to start with, before I ever knew anything about you, Boxable was, like, everywhere on my IG, YouTube. Like, you've just killed it with the marketing, um, which is crazy because, like, it's a cool product. But it's a home thing. Like it's it's hard. Usually it's easy to sell like a hot chick on Instagram, right? But you've managed to break through my Instagram feed of hot girls and put your homes in there. So very impressive. What's the background on that, man? Like how'd you where'd you like where'd all the idea come from for this? The inspiration to start Boxable and then to go down that path to make it kind of the giant that it is now. Yeah, you know, I've I've been shocked too that we've been able to get this much interest. Uh, because as you said, this is not um half naked girls it's it's healthy it's not necessarily that cool or, or interesting to people but we've been able to capture people's attention and, and interest and um you know it's just kind of started down this path and kept doubling down on on what worked so you know um we we originally when i when i was trying to get the word out about boxable back when we just had an idea I was kind of chasing down like traditional press and trying to get traditional yeah. coverage and uh, wasn't even really seeing good results, even if we did get something. And then at a certain point I said, you know what, let me try uh, YouTube. And and so I reached out to a few YouTubers that had relevant uh, channels and got um, this one girl to to do a, a video with me. And uh, her channel was about, about housing. And all of a sudden I just saw like amazing results, huge influx of, web traffic and email inquiries and all that kind of stuff. And I said, all right, I'm, I'm on to something. Let me, let me double down on this and, and keep going. And I just kept going out there and, and spreading the word and basically getting influencers who had a relevant audience to, to do uh, content on us and then uh, built up, built up the audience. And, um, you know, I think a big part of it as well is that beyond the building system that we have, you know, because we have a, we have a building system where we think, we're going to be able to mass produce room modules that can stack and connect to build most buildings like a, a single family or an apartment building. But we also uh, are starting with this little product that we're calling the Casita, and that's kind of a tiny house. Uh, tiny houses are like trendy and popular right now. And yeah. I think that helped us. And I think that if we hadn't started with that tiny house and we had started with another 
product in our lineup, we wouldn't have seen all this hype and, and interest. So, you know, that was a big one. And, and then, um, you know, the, there was a certain video which was, which was filmed in the perfect light on the perfect <laughs> time of day. And uh, I actually put it in reverse. And it's just this one video where the camera's like shaky and the house unfolds. And yeah. that video just by itself organically would do like crazy numbers. Like if I posted it on like a, an Instagram reel or something, it, it hit the algorithm in just the right way that, you know, it got views. So that video alone went viral, you know, a million times. Uh, so that was a big one too. Yeah, and some of this has to be too, that housing is so at the forefront of young people's thoughts right now, right? Affordability, uh, new innovative ways and these smaller structures and the fact that you're kind of a younger, more relatable guy. I mean, I've certainly walked through new construction homes and it's some 60 odd year old contractor there um, talking down to some people about how to maintain an air exchanger or things like that. And it just doesn't really grab the audience's attention the way, you know, a young person doing something innovative uh, through social media kind of, kind of pops. Yeah. And, um, you know, housing is definitely, you know, a problem it's expensive. And, you know, if you're, if you're making, you know, even a decent salary, a big chunk of that is going to your, your housing cost. It's not, it's not great. Um, so, you know, we're providing potentially a, a real solution to that. So I think it, it's interesting to people. 100%. Is that what inspired the idea for Boxable? I was looking through some of the previous companies you had founded. Is that what brought it on? Was you guys wanted to kind of attack the affordability mission? Or it's you, it's you and your father that work hand in hand to kind of to create the business and get it off the ground. Where, where did it all start? You know, um, this original idea to fold up the house actually came about many years ago when my father, Paolo, who's the other owner of the company, uh, built a traditional modular house. And he just saw a lot of, you know, the issues not only with the traditional con con uh, construction, the subcontractors, um, but also the wide load shipping. And yeah. the the situation was so bad to ship those wide loads and it was so, it didn't work. And he was like, all right, there's gotta be a better way than this. So he, he drew up the original idea to fold the house up back then. Uh, and then, you know, nothing ever came of it. And then in, you know, uh, you know, around beginning of 2018 or so, uh, I was up uh, doing another business in Northern California and, and he had just moved to Vegas and we just started talking about it again as, a, as an idea. And like, hey, should we should we give this a shot uh, making this thing happen? And we said, yeah, let's go for it. And then we just kind of made a website, made some 3D renders of the, of the house and uh, one day got a call from the um, uh, Builder magazine uh, who does show village at IBS at the at the convention center. So it's it's a trade show for for houses. And they said, hey, you guys want to bring a house? We'll sponsor you to bring a house. And at that point, we didn't have a house. We didn't have anything. We had a, a website and some renders. So that was what jump started us. And and then we said, let's go ahead and build this first prototype and and debut it and roll it out. And from there, you know, um, things continue to happen. So it was trial by fire. You guys literally just had a short period of time, and you you guys probably built it yourselves, got that house off the ground, and got to the show. Yeah, it was. Uh, we didn't actually build that first prototype. We hired like a third party okay. in. Um, in uh in canada actually and we uh, built the original prototypes that were two 20 foot by 40 foot units one was a a, a two bedroom and a, and a little central 
living room area and the other was like uh, like a living room and a, uh, a kitchen and then those two boxes went together to form like a, a bigger house and that was the original kind of prototype that that we started with and then we brought it to the show people were interested and uh you know we kept going and eventually got um uh eventually got uh invited back to the next year's show at that point we we were thinking about how do we start and we saw what was going on in california with accessory dwelling units and how those were becoming more popular due to changes in in the rules where they're basically legalizing people to put these backyard houses in so we said you know what let's start with the smallest room module in the system the 20 by 20 put a kitchen bath in it uh little studio apartment and and let's target it towards adu so that, then we went ahead and built those prototypes those ones we built ourselves, kind of by hand um and then the next year brought them and and showed them uh at the at the next show uh and then people really got excited about about casita i've got two questions for you do you guys come from an engineering background because i mean it's one thing to conceptualize something in your head but to make a home that folds into itself was that purely your your father's actual design or did you guys work with consultants on that because it's a pretty hard feat and my second question with that is what dimensions can you fold the casita down to well the casita folds up from 20 feet down to eight and a half feet and that's like the magic number to be highway legal and even though it's eight and a half feet it's still fully finished in the factory so within that eight and a half feet there's like six feet of of, of uncompressed space where we put kitchen and bathroom and then the rest is just the panels so pr pretty amazing uh pretty great situation to not ship a wide load to not ship any empty air space in in the room um and just not have to compromise as well on the on the room dimensions you know it's still high nine and a half foot ceilings everything's big you know it's good and then on the other question um you know uh it, it was me uh paolo and kyle that that started the company we originally um you know paolo and kyle are both both engineers they're both experts at like 3d model modeling on the computer so um you know they drew up the the product you know in 3d and um you know kyle actually has a background growing up with a family business of residential building construction so he yeah. knew like some of like what are the actual real world issues with this stuff and what makes sense um and uh you know it was just the kind of the three of us working on it for for years uh until we got into this factory and, and staffed up. Nice. Um, when some, so to talk a little bit more about the actual casitas. So they're the 375 square feet. They come with everything in them. Appliances would be a responsibility of the purchaser. Well, uh, we do ship them with the appliances in there as well in the folded oh, wow. up unit. So we're able to get uh, clothing, washer, dishwasher, refrigerator, range, like all the appliances, microwave. That is that is legitimately insanity. How How thick are the exterior walls? All the panels are about six inches. I have a question for you because we, I don't know what it's like where you are, but here the planning and approval and, and the bylaw and the inspections, they just jam everything up. And we've been saying, you know, we're big advocates of modular prefab, whatever you want to call it. We do think it is, it's the future. And my whole thing is anytime someone tried to do it, the shipping costs just killed them. And so that's why I think you guys are, are, are the next evolution of it. But I knew the challenge here locally is that they would still want to see all of the exposed wiring, 
all of the exposed insulation, and they would just take something that could probably be done very quickly and drag it out. How are you, are, are things more standardized in the areas that you're working where you can get um, kind of your code and your inspection stuff done right at the factory? Yeah, so we are applying to all the state modular programs, and those programs were designed exactly to get around the issue you mentioned, which is inspection. So because the buildings are built in a factory, they can't be inspected on site without ripping them apart. Um, so we basically get approved through the state who allows a third party to, to sign off on our inspections in the factory so that before the, the units are delivered, we know they're all you know in, inspected and 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 good to go and that's going to reduce kind of the the interactions on site with the building department interesting that makes sense um once they land on site how many people are involved in putting it together like what is it i've watched the videos and the time lapses obviously as you said they've gone viral um but realistically what should someone expect once you land a unit on site for them to unfold it build it what what do they need well, you're definitely going to have some preparation to do in advance. That might be uh, permits, um, a foundation solution, and then bringing out utilities ready to connect. Uh, but after that, you're pretty much done. Um, once the, the casita arrives, it'll be a crew of like two to four guys and some type of lifting equipment like a telehandler or a, or a crane, and they'll just unfold it, uh, lock it in with some some screws, uh, make those those final connections, and and you're good to go. And we can usually do that in a, in a few days. Are you reliant on local labor, or you guys ship it with a couple of your guys typically? We'll see how things roll out. Right now, we're more focused on these initial customers. Um, we have just a few customers that are big customers, big developers, so they're taking care of all that. We're just shipping out the units. Um, but then as we roll out to more like individual customers, uh, we may have a mix of, of our own crews and then like our approved third party installers as well. Interesting. And so you're saying that you might use these units to build bigger homes uh, and apartments. Or are you going to create like specific units? Like you're going to have a special unit that's predominantly for apartment buildings. Uh, and then you, I think you said you're going to have some larger models as well. Like, is there a plan for a lot more integrations of this or um, revisions, I guess? Well, uh, it's pretty much going to be systemized, so there'll all be standardized units that can stack and connect in different arrangements. So ideally, one day we'll have, you know, uh, a 20 by 20 box, a 20 by 30 box, a 20 by 40 box. Uh, each one will have different interiors, so maybe one will have a kitchen interior, one will have a living room interior, one will have a bedroom interior, maybe a few versions of each. And then at that point, you could stack, connect, arrange those buildings to... To those rooms to get like kind of infinite combinations of, of buildings. Uh, and then what you're getting with our product is like 90% of the, of the finishing. And then you can go ahead and, and either leave it like that, or you can customize it. Maybe you add a certain uh, style, architectural style siding on it, or, or build a deck or build a different roof pitch. Uh, you can kind of get most things most of the time with, with the standardized system, we think. Is it is is it lumber or is it like a steel frame or, or some type like that? Uh, well, it's actually a, a laminated panel system, so it's got um, uh, EPS foam core uh, with a fiber cement board skin, so it doesn't really have any any type of studs in it. Cool, interesting. So I'm not to make it pretty light by comparison, because that's the other thing when you're talking about shipping. I'm like, man, it may not be wide, but it's gonna be heavy. Yeah, and you know the weight is important too because that's going to affect the shipping costs and the, yeah. and the size of the equipment required to to handle it on site. Interesting. I want to switch gears a little bit to fundraising capital. 
Um, again, going back to your social media, you personally, and I think for the brand, have kind of taken the like, don't give a shit attitude and you've done an amazing job of it and it's helped to grow your guys' brand so much. And I think if my guess would be that it's directly allowed you guys to fundraise capital on a public level quickly, aggressively, and you've, again, done an amazing job of it. Um, what was like, I guess the idea there, was it that, like, did you, I kind of listened to some of your interviews where before you said you've gone and talked to institutions and they weren't ready to bite in. Um, and so was it by necessity or did you kind of always have in your head that like, you know what, we kind of want to do something. This is for the people in some sense. It's an affordable option. We also want to make it something that they can buy into and watch it grow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the way we've ended up, there's just so many benefits to it and, and very little downside. And, you know, we do have this kind of huge fan base of people cheering us on and they're all invested and and it helps spread the word about what we're doing and bring us potential customers and other partners it's just overall like so good um originally i was going out to to talk to traditional investors i'd never raised money for any projects i've done before and wasn't getting a great response like either wasn't getting them to understand what we were doing or getting stupid uh questions back uh or even if we did get an offer to do an investment the terms were not great and you know at all um so i just didn't like it and and uh, i said you know what's the what's the downside of doing the, the crowdfund of trying it you know maybe maybe no one invests and whatever we we move on um so uh gave it a try and it, and it just worked uh, we kept running with it and and now i think we've set some records on it can you tell tell me a bit about like how many homes you can do a day? And I saw something that said the ideal would be to get to like a house a minute, similar to like a, a car factory assembly line. Yeah, I mean, right now we we can produce two houses per shift. Um, so, but uh, I think the goal eventually is to get to like a house per minute because that's done with with other big products. Like that's done with cars. That's not like a crazy number. Uh, and and we think we've solved all the problems that should make our product compatible with that type of manufacturing stuff. So um, we we are uh, upgrading this factory and we'll get to um, hopefully, you know, um, you know, maybe maybe one per hour or less in, in this in this current factory. Uh, and then we're planning an even bigger factory that would be like a real hardcore automated mass production that would get us down to that number of maybe you know, a few, a few minutes per house or something like that. Um, yeah. How are you finding the integration of automation to do the construction? Like, I feel like that's the big one. I remember Elon Musk came on and that was his way to get the car manufacturing to where he needed to be, to be affordable. Uh, and I remember him famously saying, he's like, I undervalued what a human could do. Um, how are you guys finding it? Uh, again, I've, I've seen you guys have made big steps to kind of, you keep removing sections of your, your line to replace them with automation. How, how's that going? And, and what do you think it's going to be like? Yeah, I mean, there's a certain degree of automation that we can kind of just get off the shelf. Like, you know, if you're talking about like uh, CNC mach cutting machines, like that's all stuff that's standard that we can just grab it and 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 throw it in, and and that's great. Uh, and then we have a lot of kind of custom automation related to our um, our panel machine. So, for example, right now we're still running with the first gen uh, equipment and 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 product. Um, that we started with. And then uh, we, right now we make one panel every, about every 20 minutes. And and um, we're upgrading the equipment now 
to make one panel about every three minutes. So that equipment's going to come in later this year. Uh, it's going to really change things. There's going to be much fewer human kind of touch points in, in the mix there. Basically, we're going to be loading on, you know, a bunch of pallets of raw materials on one end and out of the other end, finished painted panels come out. So pretty crazy. No one's ever really gotten gotten close to anything like that before. Um, so uh, and that's that's all still very small scale in this first factory. And the next factory beyond that would be a whole nother level of of uh, of automation. And you know, there's a lot, lot of other stuff you know, we can do and it, it's all just going to keep moving the needle. Does this kind of surprise you at how big this has gotten? Because a lot of people have tried the modular and it's, it's an idea that's been around for a while, but to go from where you were to, you know, Elon Musk having a casita at his house, apparently, I don't know if that's true or not, uh, as like a guest suite to, I think you've got big contracts at the government level, ordering a lot of units to potentially like the end end thing would be like next day delivery through Amazon for one of these houses, does that surprise you? It just seems unreal. Uh, well, pretty much every day stuff is happening that is blowing me away. I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. It, it pretty much gets crazier and crazier every day. And there's like a thousand more things that, that you guys don't even know about that goes on all the time. And uh, at this point, I'm basically like a junkie for it. Like if some something dramatic doesn't happen, I'll be depressed. <laughs> do you think your end demographic like i mean there's so many applications because obviously developers this sounds really interesting i remember a long time ago this was probably man 10 years ago maybe i was on alibaba looking up prefab motels and apartment buildings that you could buy back then but i was like oh you could never ship it here but that is the future as someone who wants to develop this just seems like a no-brainer even the pre-engineered wall panels have been a, have been a big development um are you finding yourself potentially like worried about getting spread thin? Because obviously there's individual homeowners who are going to want this in their backyard. There's the affordability movement of people trying to do uh, more affordable housing for, for maybe at risk individuals. But then there's also private companies who need barracks and, and workhouses for big crews uh, out in the fields doing whatever. And then there's government. Like how do you prioritize things like that? So, um, we do. We are fortunate that we have a huge demand for this Casita product, so we're going to stick to that. We're going to get really good at that, and then we'll expand on that lineup later on. Um, of course, even with the Casita, there's a bunch of different use cases. So we'll um, kind of work through this this list of potential customers and strategically pick whatever makes sense for the success of the business. Um, and um, yeah, I think you know. We we have 160,000 names on on the wait list now, so uh, it's that's a pretty ludicrous. good spot for the company to be in. That's yeah, ludicrous. that's wild. That's wild. You are Elon Musk for housing, effectively. It, that that's insanity. I and I can't give you kudos enough. Like it's impressive as hell to take an idea, get the people interested in it, then use them to actually bring this product to life. And like I said, I love that you're making it so people can make a return uh, on the business as well with you. Um, is the idea to now take this international? Like where where Give us some of the sauce. So there's so many things we don't know about. Where where do you think you're going with this? Is this is the idea to build these gigafactories around the world? Are you trying to keep it in the states? Um, what what's going on? What's the future looking like? Well, um, the next big thing for us, you know, we have factory one and two here that are set up and and um, 
you know, getting dialed in. And then after that, uh, we're planning in the background right now what we're calling Boxilla Factory. So that's a project that's going to cost uh, $1 billion. So it will be the yeah. largest house factory ever done in the history of the world. It'll be like the real deal. This is going to allow us to push the price down lower, as low as it can possibly go. And, uh, you know, it's going to take a, a few years to, to build, um, um, but we'll keep chugging along. And and then uh, uh, beyond that, we do have plans for international expansion, um, probably using partners. So we'll find large companies, large manufacturers around the world that are interested in taking our formula and replicating it in their local market. And we already have a growing list of people that want to do that. So uh, we'll see how it all plays out, but things are definitely going good. There must be some things that are kind of proprietary or or that you've got a patent on, like the folding technique, because I, there, there has to be people that are trying to imitate to some degree. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not really worried about people copying us. Um, there's just so much to it. And, you know, even if they cut, came into the factory and did a tour today and copied everything that we have, they'd just be one step behind because we're already on to the next upgrades of everything. You know, and we do have over 60 patent filings as well. Uh, and there's a big barrier to entry here. You can't do this unless you have hundreds of millions of dollars and a lot of other barriers uh, beyond that, too. So it's kind of a limited pool of people that can knock us off. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There's there's hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, that they're behind realistically. So is the idea to take it public next? Yeah, I think that once we secure the funding we need for this really big factory and we break ground on it, but before it's actually operating will probably go public amazing that'll be a huge return for people if you could pinpoint one thing and i know this is difficult but if you could attribute the success of boxable to one thing what would it be uh well there's certainly been a lot of uh a lot of um uh different things that that happened and you know a lot of it was uh you know a little bit of luck here and there and then also just persistence um, but, you know, I think, you know, going, going the crowdfunding route definitely changed our trajectory big time and made us masters of our own destiny. So capitalizing on that, and I, and I, in my head, I'm, I was thinking that would be it, especially again with your marketing to be able to get everyone on board. This is the other thing too, for, for years, governments always tried to have their finger in the housing, you know, situation and, they always, even when they outsourced it to private sector, they always wanted to meddle in it. And I think your model is fiercely independent and the government's always going to be late to the party. And it's interesting now, they'll be one of your supporters, I think. We always talk about you're better to be um, going with the tide of government than it beating against it. Uh, but the fact that you've managed to be so independent and now the government will kind of sign on both in a, in a development perspective, but also as a potential big client. I think that's really cool. And that's an interesting takeaway for people trying to start things up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the government in general is responsible for the fact that housing is expensive. Um, they're contributing in a huge way to that because they're, they're interfering with building construction, like on every possible level. Uh, it's a nightmare. I mean, it's been a nightmare just for us to get our buildings approved. Um, they're adding they're adding costs all over the place. They're stopping. They're blocking innovation. It's 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 a nightmare. You know, I, I mean, a, a big part of it is that 
a lot of these local governments budgets are tied to property tax so therefore yep. they feel like they got to go in and you know do something and uh i think it's it's a total disgrace as usual you know the government is just generally too big and, and hurting people um, but you know maybe boxable can help with that because we can standardize a lot of the stuff and remove the, the need or the claims need for these people to even be involved in the first place. 100% agree. We say all the yeah. time. Yeah. Last question for you. So I know you got to get back to, uh, to your day. Was there an Elon effect by having him show you guys out that he's living in one of your guys' units? Did that, was that like lighting jet fuel on the whole situation? But before anyone knew about him, we were doing yeah. great. Like we set a record in the crowd funds for the reg, um, reg CF offering we did. It was like we sold out like a five million dollar reg CF in, in under a few weeks, um, which was a record. And then uh, after he came out and said something, of course, that brought more attention to us. But it wasn't just that he mentioned it. It was that the press picked up on it. So if he had just mentioned us, fine, we would have got a little bump. But we got a big bump because the press did articles on it. So we ended up with over 100 articles all around the world talking about how he lived in our house. And it just made more people find out about us. And that that sort of celebrity thing is is big in the startup space. Do you How do you feel about that? Because you have a pretty big social media presence. You're also, you know, like a family man. What's your comfort level with that? And what's your dad think of it? Because he's presumably from a little older generation. Uh, well, the, the, the truth of it is uh, I am not. Uh, it's not something I want. I don't want to be noticed. I don't want people uh, like attacking me all the time or uh, or invading my privacy and all this other stuff that comes along with it. Uh, and it sucks, uh, frankly. Um, but I'm willing to do that if that's what it takes to make this a success. So, you know, that's, that's where we are with me leveraging, you know, my own personal and, and social media to make boxable success. So y'all take one for the team on that. Right I, I respect it, man. I think you strike a fine balance of not giving a shit and then also not being a dick on there with like the flex. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You, you do it. You do a good job, man. I, I, I like what you've done a lot. Um, and we appreciate you coming on and, and reaching out off, off our shout out. Um, so yeah, all the success to you. Boxable is sweet. Hopefully we can buy one up here in Canada soon. Um, it, uh, yeah. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Like we came across as genuinely, we never thought we'd, we'd hear from you. It's just, we're a big believer in the whole sector and then specifically what you guys are doing, man. I think it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. Thanks guys for your interest. And we did actually just get our, our crowdfunding opened up on, in Canada. So there's a re website called front funder and frontfunder.com slash boxable we can now accept investment from anyone in canada sweet we'll link it in our in our bio and, and hopefully we get some people that go in on it and maybe we'll throw some sauce for sure yeah <laughs> and we'll include some some video of uh of the actual products too because it's really neat for people to watch so appreciate your time man all right thanks so much Thanks so much for watching the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, press like. Don't forget to subscribe. But also check us out on Instagram and TikTok. You can find all the links below. Thanks again for checking us out.